Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The scripture says that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, let the church of Jesus Christ say. Church, one of the supposedly helpful things that Amazon does for you now is that they track the items that you have purchased more than once. And so when you log in and search for coffee filters or whatever, you can see right at the top of your search results the exact item that you have previously ordered. That way, they argue, you'll never lose track of getting the exact item that you're looking for. You've ordered this item three times before the search results inform you. Your last order was in January of 2021. Okay, great. Helpful. But church, sometimes the number of items the number of times you've previously ordered some items is a little embarrassing. For our family, one of those items is colored masking tape. Josh? Is it up? No. Amazon calls it, there we go. Amazon calls it craft tape, and it comes in a classroom-sized bundle of 11 rolls in a rainbow of colors for like 20 bucks. It's not an outlandish purchase by any stretch, and our kids use it for everything. They use it to mark off a football field or basketball court in our basement. They use it to hang up recently painted artwork. They use it to design and build play swords that then they hit their brothers with and then have those swords taken away. (laughs) They use it to repair torn dress-up clothes. They use it to turn Lego minifigures into mummies. They use it for everything. We actually order some, and we wrap it up and give it to the kids for Christmas. And you'd think that the seven-year-old just received a million dollars. Craft tape is serious business in the Novak house. Now, you should know that the total length of tape 
in a single bundle of 11 rolls is 1,815 feet. That's 600 yards, which is like six football fields in length. Well, this week we found that we're down to our very last roll of craft tape, and so I logged into Amazon to place a new order, only to be confronted, maybe assaulted, by the following automated report. You have ordered this item six times. Six times, church. Six orders of 11 rolls of tape. That's 66 rolls of tape. Six orders of 1,815 feet of tape. That's nearly 11,000 feet. In the past four years, my kids have used two miles of tape in our house. And if Google is to be trusted on this, then I have to tell you that the Novaks could take the tape that we've ordered and we could mark off two and a half regulation-sized NFL football fields complete with five-yard lines without a problem. Now, someone out there is thinking to themselves, what a waste. Why do they let their kids use up so much craft tape. You're thinking, hey, this family has spent close to 150 bucks on masking tape that their kids use for silly games. Surely there are better uses for their money. Maybe you're right. But look, church, the extravagance of craft tape in our household is for our kids an act of imagination and creativity. It's not a waste to them. It's an act of creation and design. It's a tool to connect cardboard forts. It's an essential component in their mutual play together. It's not a waste to them. It's only a waste to the person on the outside who's not part of their games. It's only a waste to someone who lacks the imagination to see a child's mind at work through play. Today's gospel text is taken from the Gospel of John which is an odd intrusion into our steadfast journey through the Gospel of Luke. We're in year C of the Revised Common Lectionary, a year that is devoted to stories about Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, but because we have four Gospels in the Bible and only three lectionary years, the editors of the lectionary have woven in key texts from John's Gospel into each of the three years of the lectionary. And so today... We hear a story of Jesus on the eve of Palm Sunday, about a week before he would die. John chapter 12 takes us to a house that readers of the Gospel of John would have been familiar with already. It's the house in a village called Bethany, a house belonging to the sisters Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, the same Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead in the previous chapter. The Lazarus, whom the Gospel of John portrays as one of Jesus' closest friends. One whose premature death from an undisclosed illness caused Jesus to weep in sorrow before he called him back to life. People may have written off the others of Jesus' miracles and signs in the Gospel of John, but raising Lazarus from the dead, his seventh sign was a doozy. 
And people struggled to figure out what they were going to do with this new reality of someone coming back from the dead, having been buried for four days. News about this traveled far and quick, and people couldn't stop talking about this man, Jesus, who raised the dead. The religious authorities became afraid the Romans would catch wind and start to worry about a religious insurrection forming, and so they decided it was time to arrest Jesus and then get rid of him by killing him. If they could do that, they argued, they'd be able to distance themselves from his movement and keep Rome uninterested in their region. So in the aftermath of John chapter 11 and Lazarus' resurrection, you have to understand Jesus was a wanted guy, not in favor with those who determined official Jewish policies. And his raising of Lazarus from the dead made him a target for arrest and execution. In the verses that follow today's reading, if you keep reading past 12 verse 8, you'll find that the authorities even want to kill Lazarus just to remove him as evidence of Jesus' miraculous work. But today in our text, we're in Bethany, just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, a small village located across the Kidron Valley, east of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is at his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, and he's there to enjoy a meal. Today's scene takes place among allies, friends, Everyone's guard is down a bit. Mary and Martha have seen their brother raised to life. Lazarus is no longer dead, but eating food. The disciples have seen far more than they've bargained for, and they're here too, taking a bit of a respite. And as our text opens up, Martha's getting things prepped for dinner. Lazarus and Jesus are sitting at the table talking as friends do. There are no Pharisees trying to test Jesus. There are no crowds pressing in to receive healing. This is a meal among friends in a familiar house with familiar smells and with familiar people filling their typical seats. We all have familiar places to us that are places we associate with safety and warmth Enjoy. Maybe it's your own home. Maybe it's your parents' house. Maybe it's the cabin up north. Maybe it's the condo in Florida. Wherever it is, when you're there, when the people you're closest with are around a table with you, you feel finally like yourself. You feel at ease. You don't feel like you're being interviewed or examined. You're just stretching out as yourself in the best possible way. That's where Jesus is today. And while he is at dinner, Mary, Lazarus' sister, is going to do something unusual. She takes a full bottle of fragrant oil called a pound of pure nard in the text, undiluted, highly potent, and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. The gospel says she anoints his feet with it. It's the same word that will be used to describe what the women who go out to the tomb do to Jesus' body after his death. They are going out to anoint it. It's the same word to describe how the sick were anointed with oil in an act of prayer for their healing. It's not a royal thing. It's not the word used to describe how kings were anointed. It's a different kind of anointing. And Mary does this by pouring out the bottle on Jesus' feet. 
And then in another unusual move, she wipes up the excess with not a cloth, but with her hair. The gospel reports that the whole house becomes filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Open up those olfactory senses, church, and smell this scene with your mind. If you've ever been somewhere where the air has been filled with the smell of something, a freshly baked loaf of bread emerging from the oven, a bowl of diced tomatoes marinating with fresh garlic and chopped basil, a rosemary-infused butter basting over a perfectly seared steak, you know that there are some smells that just burst onto the scene and occupy your entire sense of smell. And in this house, this small first-century home, it's now filled with the pungent, sharp, woodsy, musky smell of the nard perfume spilling out onto the feet of Christ. And this is what caught my nose this week, church. Mary's self-offering to Christ is utterly extravagant. An entire pound of pure, undiluted perfume dumped out onto his feet, the smell interrupting all other smells and causing everyone to sit up and wonder what just happened. And why is Mary now wiping it with her hair? Why doesn't she just get a cloth? Why not use a towel or a robe? Well, church, if you're asking me, I think Mary is doing something powerfully prophetic in this moment. Pouring out this perfume in this way shows that Mary understood that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, things are going to go badly for him. Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet with the perfume Jesus says she saved for his burial shows that Mary is reasonably convinced Jesus is going to die and she wants to bless him before he does. People didn't bathe as regularly in those days, so the smell of that perfumed oil would likely have lingered on Jesus' feet for the next several days. It would be there when he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It would be there when he shares his last meal with his disciples and then as he stoops to wash their feet. It would be there when he prays alone in the garden. It would be there when Judas arrives with the armed guards. It would still be there as he is dragged before Pilate and dragged off to be beaten. It would be there, however faintly, as the nail pierced his feet and pinned him to the cross. The smell of Mary's devotion and friendship and her recognition of the reality he would face would be there at Christ's lowest moment. It would linger. Mary's dumping out of this perfume was a supreme sign that she had been paying attention to all of Jesus' warnings that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and there wasn't anything anyone could do about it. In pouring out this burial perfume, Mary names out loud the reality that every other disciple had denied or downplayed. Jesus was going to suffer and die. And then she wipes it with her hair. And by doing this rather unusual act, I think Mary actually joins herself 
to the same experience of Christ. I think that wiping up the perfume with her hair is a prophetic sign of herself being joined to the physical suffering of Christ. Because just as Jesus will smell that perfume in the days to come, so will Mary. It will literally be in the fibers of her hair. She will be reminded of the reality of the Christ's suffering as he suffers. She will be reminded of the reality of his death as he dies. And she symbolically, prophetically connects herself to this reality in a very personal way. But Mary's personal act of devotion and self-offering is interrupted by the world's hugest eye roll coming from across the room. What a waste, Judas the cynic says. If you ever want to know what the Gospels thought about Judas's betrayal, just read some of the parenthetical notes they write about Judas such as in our gospel reading today where it says Judas didn't really care about the poor. He, was just, he just stole money from the purse. Like, they, they want to make sure you know this is a bad dude. He didn't just betray Christ. He was a thief too, right? What a waste, Judas says. There are always cynics in every group, always the people who are quick to point out the downsides, the problems, the, but did you think of that? Always the people who assume the worst doubt the best and always expect negative outcomes. Judas is our cynic here. What a waste. What a waste of resources. That bottle cost 300 denarii, Jesus, Judas argues. Now that figure might not mean much to you and me, but it was roughly the amount of money that a person might expect to make in a year of work. So for our purposes today, let's say that the bottle cost 40 grand. It's been long argued that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are probably a rather wealthy family, which would explain how Mary ends up with a bottle of perfume so costly, but a year's salary, one bottle of perfume, a year's salary of perfume that is now dumped out on Jesus' feet. What a waste of money, Judas says. What about the poor? Jesus, Judas, the cynic, asks. Church, whataboutism is a logical fallacy that tries to draw a comparison between two very different realities to distract attention from the reality that you think is less important. So say I say to Carl today, hey Carl, last week I think you made a mistake in the postlude. And he were to respond, you're such a hypocrite, Novak. I mean, what about Paul's socks? They're really ugly. Why aren't you asking about those? That's a whataboutism. Whataboutism is the gold standard taken by so many hosts of so many cable news channels where people deflect attention from one matter by trying to bring up an unrelated matter instead. Whataboutism is actually the gold standard approach taken by my children. When I ask one of them, why haven't you cleaned up your room or put away your clothes or practiced the piano or set the table or whatever the chore is, I'm often accosted with a what about him? Well, what about him? He didn't do it when you asked yesterday. Or what about him? He's just sitting there. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's not really the point, is it? What about the poor, Jesus, Judas asks. That money could have benefited the poor, 
Judas says. That money could have been used to feed a multitude. It could have provided essential supplies for those whose needs were great. It's worth 300 denarii. That bottle was worth 40 grand, Jesus. Why? What a waste to pour it out all over your feet. And in saying these things, Judas is trying to take Mary's act of self-offering and set it alongside service to the poor in order to argue that these two things are comparable and that Mary's use of the money, of the, of the perfume in this way, was wasteful and silly. But the problem with Judas is that he lacks the imagination to see what Mary's actually doing with the perfume. He lacks the imagination to see what this perfume means and what her radical act of self-offering might suggest. Judas can't recognize the way that Mary has woven herself into the story of Jesus' suffering and death. He's just worried about the appearance. What a waste. Like someone might say to my kids who spend craft tape on all sorts of silly things, what a waste. Like someone might say when a church decides to make long overdue repairs to a sanctuary, what a waste. That money could have been given to the poor. And so to Judas, to the cynics, to the pragmatists, Jesus says this. He says, let her be. He says, leave her alone. Look, Judas, Jesus essentially says, this is not a waste. She has bought this perfume to be used at my burial. Using it now is a profound act of devotion, of worship, of imagination, a supreme act of recognition by Mary. She sees what you have failed to see. Mary grasps what you've pretended to ignore. Mary has heard me say that the time is drawing close for me to die. This offering is not something that gets to be set comparatively alongside gifts to the poor as if to say one is better than the other. This is something unique. It's something different. It's something important. Secondly, Jesus says to Judas, you will always have the poor with you. You will not always have me, which admittedly is a rather difficult saying until you realize that Jesus is actually quoting a bit of the Old Testament here, specifically Deuteronomy 15, where Moses tells the Israelites this. He says, if there is any among you, if there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give them nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. And then here in verse 11, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. And the point for both Jesus and Moses is that the normative pattern of activity for God's people should be characterized by radical, generous, open-handed service to the poor. The fact that there will always 
be folks in need does not justify inaction as if to say, oh, well, what's the point? We can't ever stop poverty. But rather it's to say, listen, we better get used to making generosity towards those in need normative for us. And we must resist the temptation to view the poor with hostility. But more to the point, I think Jesus, Jesus says to Judas, this act of worship and providing for the needy are not interchangeable, comparable activities. Both are necessary. Both are expected. As we approach Palm Sunday and the end of another Lenten journey, it's good for us to be reminded that the work we do here in this sanctuary on Sunday mornings, the work we do of worship, of lofty songs of praise, of lavish notes poured out on a pipe organ, the harmonies of a choir, this weekly action is important. It is good because here we have a chance to pour out our self-offerings at the feet of Christ. Here we join ourselves to the life and death of Jesus. Here we make sure that we carry with us the aroma of Christ as we go into the rest of our weeks. Some might call this a waste of resources and time when there are so many in need, but Jesus tells the cynics to let it go. This is worthwhile activity. But it is equally good to be reminded that when we leave this room, we enter a world that is filled with folks who are in need, and we are not called to retreat or ignore them, nor are we called to write them off as simply part of the world we can't change. But rather, we are called to offer ourselves and our gifts generously to them as well. And between these two acts of worship and service, we will find ourselves aligned with the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in our world. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say, Amen. Amen.